0: As Bristol's Colston Four are acquitted, we ask what next for the decolonisation of London's built environment. Open City podcast host Salati Satufa is awarded an MBE for services to diversity in architecture. Victorian Railway Arches and Q Tree Houses in the spotlight for two new London architecture competitions. And Richard Rogers, Chris Wilkinson, and Max Fordham, who recently passed away, are remembered. My name is Zoe Cave, I work at Open City, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The Down. My guest this week is Rosamond Lily West. Rosamond is a curator, writer and historian. Uh, welcome to the show, Rosamond. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. Our first story of 2022 is all to do with the Edward Colston statue, which was toppled during the Black Lives Matter protests in Bristol in June 2020. Uh, So last week, Bristol Crown Court acquitted four protesters who were charged with criminal damage after the statue, honouring a prolific slave trader, was torn from its plinth and rolled to a watery grave in Bristol Harbour. This story has been covered across the national media. The four defendants, known as the Colston Four, are aged between 21 and 36 and named as Rian Graham, Jake Skews, Sage Willoughby and Milo Ponsford. Uh, so after a two-week trial, the public gallery of Bristol Crown Court erupted in loud cheers as the verdicts were returned. However, not everyone took part in the celebrations. Prime Minister Boris Johnson was quoted by the Daily Mail as saying vandals could not, quote... Change our history, adding that any removal of statues should be done democratically. Meanwhile, journalist Ash Sarkar wrote on Twitter, quote, Edward Coulson's statue being dragged through the streets and thrown into the harbour where his slave ships docked was a more meaningful act of historical education than anything achieved in the hundred and twenty-five years it stood untroubled in Bristol. The news coincides with the launch of a new competition for a quote, radical and brave revamp of the International Slavery Museum and the neighbouring Maritime Museum in Liverpool. The estimated £1.7 million contract will be awarded to a creative, innovative, diverse and highly skilled team to revamp the two museums situated in a Grade 1 listed former warehouse on the historic waterfront. The project seeks proposals to transform the sensitive site, which played a key role in the growth of the British Empire. Um, It will be co-produced through a democratic, diverse and bold and truly representative process to improve exhibition spaces and circulation across the two museums, whilst also creating a new community space and entrance to the International Slavery Museum. Um, So Rosamond, statues have played quite a significant role in the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and in the protests that we've seen across the past few years. Why are they so significant? And um, what does bringing these statues to the ground mean for the country's relationship with its colonial history? Um, Well, they're
1: significant because they're part of our cityscape. Um, Statues are in public places such as squares, by train stations in parks, They serve as landmarks. They're in the kind of places that you hang around, that you might meet people by. Sometimes people have sort of said that these statues have been rather ignored, that they're a sort of dull, quite static part of our cityscapes. But in the recent resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, this has really shone a spotlight on these statues and quite specifically who these statues are. By putting up a statue of someone, the thoughts, the commissioning process, the expense, um, the creation of that sculpture, the actual making, the rendering of that person, we are celebrating them. We're literally putting them up on a pedestal. When you walk around amongst them, they're
0: looking down on us. When, when, and off the back of that, what, when these statues fall or are pulled down, or are threatened to be pulled down or any of that kind of like those sorts of acts. What do you think that that means for this country's relationship with its colonial history?
1: I've never experienced a time when the heritage of this country is has been so politicised and is talked about so much, not just in the heritage sector, but in the media and by members of the public. Um, sadly, a lot of that has been kind of weaponised and is quite negative. And these so-called culture wars have been quite unpleasant and divisive and you know being quite dark in some ways and but what we must remember is a statue is just a statue despite being an effigy of a person is not actually a real person so removing a statue or reinterpreting a statue does not erase history it does not rewrite history um but more knowledge and more discussion on this is wonderful what happens to statues at the moment is just a continuation of their history toppling statues changing statues putting up statues is not a new thing it's just a continuation of history um, but these conversations have been had for many years um, i mean you know, you gave the the colston example um that was not a new discussion about Colston. Communities in Bristol had been talking about that for a long, long time, and really nothing had happened. They hadn't really been listened to. So it it ended in that quite spectacular toppling of a statue. Um, but the sort of the debate about whether to remove statues or reinterpret statues is very interesting. You, you know, you said about how we pick and choose certain individuals in history. But also, you know, another layer of that is we pick and choose what we say on the plaque beneath them, um, what we're celebrating them for. And changing or removing or reinterpreting a plaque does not take away from from what that person is initially famous for or maybe celebrated for, but it just gives further context and more knowledge, more discussion, more context is never, never a bad thing. That leads
0: on really nicely to the next question because they are talking about the Police and Crime Sentencing Bill, which is being advanced through Parliament at the moment, um, there'll be a maximum 10-year sentence for anyone found guilty of criminal damage to a monument. Um, for, for you, Rosamund, what does this mean for the future of peaceful protests in Britain um, and for grassroots efforts to decolonise the built environment?
1: Well, I think, as I mentioned, these, these so-called cultural wars have produced a real knee-jerk reaction, and I think this bill is part of that kind of reaction and it comes from a sort of certain quite conservative but powerful minority um, and that we have this much protection for statues which as I said are inanimate objects, um, effigies of the so-called great and good is, is quite baffling really. Um, so what it means for the fu- future of peaceful protests in Britain is that they're under threat. It will become increasingly difficult to protest in this country and protesters will be threatened with more severe punishment. Um, And it's a deliberate curtail on the public's right to protest, of which monuments, statues, sculptures, whatever you want to call them, have been a real kind of focus of this. Um, So yes, the bill will increase the maximum penalty from three months to ten years for damage to a statue. I think they're referred to as monuments in the bill. So it's a clear message, I think, in response to the Black Lives Matter movement and the pulling down of the Colston statue in June 2020, which really
0: threatened that kind of status quo, I think. So what has been the impact of the Colston statue toppling and wider Black, Live, uh, Black Lives Black Matter protests in sort of like instigating like a deeper thinking about the colonial leg- uh, legacies of the built environment? Um, do you think that this recent competition in Liverpool shows that we're starting to invest more into addressing our colonial history or is it does it feed into the culture war in any way like what's your take on this from looking at what the cultural sector are doing
1: um so following the toppling of the colston statue we've seen lots of discussions about many other statues but also further into the built environment um building names but also street names as well in our towns and cities um, I mean, I live in Woolwich, and that's got a, a very significant military collection and um, connection. Sorry, um, and so we have a lot of sort of slightly awkwardly named <laughs> streets here. So, but there's also been discussions around the removal of Robert Jeffrey's statue outside the Museum of the Home. The trustees there decided in July 2020 to retain that statue. Um, so the museum's looking at recontextualising it. Um, then we've also got Robert Milligan's statue, um, which was removed from outside the Museum of London Docklands. So there we've got an instance of a statue being removed. So it's very much on a case by case basis. Um, But yeah, the Liverpool Commission. So that was reported on by Merlin Fulcher in the Architects Journal. Um, So the the International Slavery Museum is currently within Liverpool Maritime Museum. It's actually on the third floor. And they're both part of national museums liverpool who own quite a few museum sites around liverpool Um, i was lucky enough to visit in november for the museums association conference which was hosted at liverpool riverside Um, and with the other delegates i was given a tour by the curator there who really explained the thinking behind the museum and the stories they're trying to tell at the museum. It's not just about historical slavery at that museum. They're a campaigning museum. They talk about modern slavery as well. So it's really, it's a real current issue as well. And then the competition. So National Museums Liverpool launched, as you said, a collaborative and co-produced transformation of its International Slavery Museum and the Maritime Museum. So this is to revamp both of those museums, currently housed in a Grade 1 listed warehouse known as the Hartley Pavilion. The aim is to um, improve display space of the museum, but also to include a new community space, which I think is going to be really key for those important discussions on the site. And there'll be an entrance to the International Slavery Museum in the neighbouring Martin Luther King Jr. building, because at the moment, you enter the Slavery Museum sort of in a lift or up a stair on the third floor within another museum. So it'll give it more prominence, which is really important, especially at the moment. So, it's really, it'll be really interesting to see the result of this competition and to see how National Museums Liverpool and the International Slavery Museum really embeds community engagement, real meaningful in community engagement in that museum. Because it is absolutely key, and I'm sure the whole sort of heritage sector will be watching them to get that right and to interpret their collections in a sensitive way. Because, you know, when you visit there, a lot of the collections and a lot of the displays are really challenging they're really difficult but also sort of they tell a wider story which i thought was really interesting about um to sort of combat this the sort of idea that that the history of africa that whole continent kind of starts with slavery there's they have lots of interpretation in the museum about as much as you can about whole continent but about the history of africa before the transatlantic slave trade so it's it's a really interesting museum with a key message, but it's got a very wide remit. And it's, if anyone's not been, it's definitely worth a visit. It's, it's a really amazing museum and so, so important to engage with those conversations now.
0: Yeah. And so talking about it within the museum context, we're thinking about how, like, education happens in quite, like, a formalised setting. Um, and, and with this, it's that's something we've spoken about Liverpool, we've spoken about Bristol... But London has its own past, which it needs addressing. Um, and Rosamond, you run a walking tour with Open City um, of Canary Wharf and the East India Docklands, addressing the area's strong colonial ties to the empire. Um, so yeah, kind of shoehorning the bit about education back in. What does historical education out and about in the city play in in the discussion around racism in a more like contemporary sense?
1: Oh, I think it's absolutely key using the built environment and using our public spaces as an educational tool about our colonial history is so exciting because it's accessible to everybody. You just have to walk outside your door and you can find things that will teach you about our colonial history. So yeah, so London as a port city, like Liverpool, like Bristol, has and had a huge role to play in this discussion. Um, So I mentioned earlier the statue of Robert Milligan that has been removed from outside Museum of London Docklands, which um, I visit on my Open City tour, and we sort of we we discuss it. Um, So Milligan he died in 1809, but the statue was created. The statue to him was created in 1813, and it was installed in front of the dock offices. Then relocated several times because of the. Uh, regeneration of that area but it was put outside the museum of london docklands in 1997 which feels really recently which is quite interesting i think um and milligan was a, a merchant in kingston in jamaica and by the time of his death his business interests involved the ownership of over 500 enslaved people Um, He was deputy chairman of the West India Dock Company and headed up a group of other very, very rich businessmen to establish these docks who had a monopoly on West Indian goods for 21 years. So that whole structure and the wealth that is on that part, um, is in that dock system and came to that part of London is really built on the back of enslaved people and the the trade that resulted from their labor so uh, i think education and awareness of history is an essential part of the discussion around racism and confronting our colonial history
0: that sounds amazing Rosamond, and i really really appreciate hearing what you say about like the accessibility of the built environment of our public spaces as a form of education um and if If anything that Rosamund just said about that maybe pricked your interest or sort of lit a fire in you, we do have Open City run the Golden Key Academy, which is designed specifically to create incredible urban storytellers, tour leaders who can basically take the the urban environment and turn it into an, a tour accessible to anyone who's interested. Um, key things for any of you who are interested, that's the 24th of January is the deadline. We run an open lunchtime meet and greet thing on the 19th if you wanted to find out more. Um, and you, that everything you need to know about it is on our website, which is open-city.org.uk um, and you'll find everything you need there. Um, okay, on to the next story So Selassie Setufa, the young architect, host of Slavery in the City on the Open City podcast And author of an up-and-coming Pocket London printed guide to barking Was awarded an MBE for her services to diversity and architecture In the Queen's New Year's Honours last week, the AJ reports The 31-year-old is currently the Innovative Sites Programme Manager at Barking's Be First Regeneration Company and co-director of Black Females in Architecture, a network she co-founded in 2018 with a global membership of more than 400 people. On receiving this prestigious award, uh, Selassie said... It's a great honour to be recognised and I hope this opens doors for even greater work to be accomplished. Most importantly though, I look forward to increased awareness of the changes that are needed within the profession and to seeing action taken to make the profession more equitable and diverse. Alongside Selassie, there were a number of other built environment practitioners who were recognised in this year's honours. Hanif Kara, co founder of Engineers to the Stars, AKT2, and professor in practice of architectural technology at Harvard Graduate School of Design, was awarded an OBE for services for architecture, to engineering, and to education. Cara said, I am proud and full of joy for this recognition and very grateful to every single person that has supported me on all three endeavors, in particular, my family and colleagues at AKT2. I could never have imagined an OBE when I arrived in the UK as a refugee in the mid 1970s. It's a great start to 2022. Also receiving an honor was Andrew Wally, the Global Chair of Grimshaw for Services to Architecture and to Environmental Sustainability um, and as Devlin, Devlin was the mastermind behind the UK Pavilion at the Delayed Expo 2020 Dubai and was made a Commander of the Order of the British Empire, CBE, for her services to design. So Rosamond, what do you make of this list? I think
1: every year when the list is announced, it prompts discussion and speculation, sometimes controversy. Um, but it's wonderful to see people from the built environment recognised, especially people of colour. Um, and it feels really inspiring to see Salafi Satufe to be honoured, uh, a young black woman working at diversifying the sector. Um, her work as one of the founders, as you mentioned, of black females in architecture is crucial at diversifying a sector that is still very male and, what, what do people say, very male and pale. Um, and this could, could be a real catalyst for change. This sends out a really strong signal, prompting young people growing up now to see the working in the built environment as a job that they can do, um, and it feels really important and timely that Hanif Kara specifically mentions coming here as a refugee in the nineteen seventies. Again, I think that's sending out a really strong message and. Another good thing, I think, about these honours is that people can use it as a platform. Um, And I think it was interesting that he mentioned coming here as a refugee, when current rhetoric on refugees is so deliberately, in some quarters, deliberately negative and divisive. Um, On a similar note, you know, Andrew Wally, for his services to architecture and environmental sustainability, that, again, that feels so crucial in the current climate. Um, as we feel the climate emergency and discussions regarding sustainability in the sector and the role that architects in the built environment can play in this, so I think this list specifically why these people, these three people, have been honoured sends out a really positive message in terms of our priorities, um, priorities as a sector, but also priorities as a society in terms of being serious about diversifying the sector and environmental sustainability as well. The most excellent
0: order of the British Empire under which MBEs, OBEs, and CBEs fall was established in the early uh, 20th century by King George V. Um, Rosamond, do you think they are still relevant in today's society? Um, and what does it mean that they have been awarded to such a diverse, um, if not small, selection of architects?
1: I think the use of the word empire is key here, and it's obviously problematic for all the connotations that that has um such as the slave trade um colonialism oppression theft um and is it still relevant today i think it's important to recognize people um and to celebrate their achievements and to have an award for that and to have those letters after your name as well is 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 huge it's a really big deal but the use of the word empire i think is problematic but as well as being problematic i think you have to think what does that even mean today It's just outdated and it refers to something that doesn't
0: exist anymore. Uh, So Lambeth Council is recruiting a creative team to rethink a series of Victorian railway viaducts in Vauxhall and Nine Elms that the AJ reported last week. Uh, the team selected for the estimated £80,000 contract will drop a high-level vision document exploring the potential for a new strategic walking route, helping to unlock new commercial, cultural and community opportunities across 250 railway arches. So the project, um, also supported by neighbouring local authority Wandsworth Council, and the aim is for it to connect the high-rise regeneration zone to Southwark's nearby lowline. And... Um, for those of you high line low line might have heard these sorts of terms float around a bit it's been inspired by new york's high line and this low line is a linear regeneration of underused 19th century railway viaducts running through bankside london bridge and bermondsey Um, then further west in richmond we have an international competition has been announced for a series of spectacular tree houses at royal botanic gardens Kew. Um, The competition, organised by Kew and the Museum of Architecture, will select teams to create three treetop installations across the 132 hectare UNESCO World Heritage Site ahead of a special exhibition in 2023. Um, The winning projects will communicate the value of good design and the role of sustainable materials and trees in tackling climate change. Uh, three further treehouses will be direct commissions awarded to architects from Kew's uh, designated international scientific priority countries and a seventh treehouse will be designed with young people. Um, so, Rosmond, railway arches are a fixture of pretty much every corner of London. TfL owns and manages more than 800 of them dotted around the city. Could you tell our listeners a bit more about the history of these arches? Um What sort of things have they been used historically and then more nowadays?
1: Railway arches are a key part of the infrastructure of London. TfL is one of the biggest landowners in London and the rent from its land and premises, like railway arches and also if you think of all the units within stations, that's really key to TfL's income generation, especially since the dip in ticket sales in the last two or nearly two years. Um, Over 93% of TfL's tenants occupying railway arches are small to medium businesses. Um, And last July, on um, the 3rd of July, um, TfL had Arch Day with a hashtag Love Your Local Arches, as they were really kind of seen as really key in the recovery of London, encouraging people to use their local arches and the businesses within them. Uh, But yes, historically, London's cityscape was completely transformed by the arrival of the railways in the 19th century, and vast areas of London were cleared to build the railways, particularly if you think of the large termini such as London Bridge. Um, but quite quickly, railway arches became synonymous with urban blight. So if you think of the large area with the high brick walls, um, they're quite imposing, and the arches became notorious with attracting crime, as I said, they're often away from housing, busy streets and shops. Um, but in more recent times, these railway arches have really come to symbolise regeneration in London. And I think that's really shown by the different businesses you see in railway arches. Um, like I always think of railway arches, when I was a child, had things in like, like garages, but also like scrap metal merchants and things like that. But more recently, you see you're seeing different businesses, particularly in arches around, you know, the overground stations with all the regeneration that's come with those. You see, I don't know, like artisan bakers in railway arches, which um, that, that is very different to the kind of traditional image of a railway arch. Um, so you've got, I mean, this this there's a flip side of this. Premises that were once cheap and undesirable, you know, and very big are now part of the rapid gentrification of London. Um, And I think their uses and their structures are a real barometer, they're kind of a mirror for London to show how London, specifically inner London, has really changed and who those spaces are for and who can afford to use those spaces or not. So then Rosamond, kind of
0: pivoting from from hyper-urban railway arches over further west to Kew Gardens, um, when you think about Kew Gardens and most people think about plants, Um, Could you tell us a bit more about what the relationship between architecture and this historic London Park is?
1: Yes, yeah. I mean, Kew, it's the Royal Botanic Gardens, as you mentioned. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and it's a world famous leader in plant and fungal science. Um, And they've launched a competition in partnership with the Museum of Architecture to design seven tree houses to really highlight the link between the built environment and the natural environment, and how architects can tackle the climate crisis. Um, So there are other examples of contemporary architecture at Kew. So there's the Marks Barfield treetop walkway, which opened in 2008, and John Paulson's 2006 Sackler crossing over a lake in the park. Um, But as the gardens were founded in 1840, um, as well as these um, contemporary examples and the forthcoming treehouses, Kew has an array of plant houses and ornamental buildings. The Waterlily House, the Palm House. It's got the world's largest surviving Victorian glass building, the Temperate House, which was restored by Donald Insull and reopened in 2018, originally designed in 1859 by architect Decimus Burton. So these Victorian buildings were feats of engineering to house these tropical plants and keep them alive that went alongside the exploration and discovery that went into finding these plants in the first places from all over the world. Um, But of course, I mean, linking to what we were discussing earlier, this plant finding and these scientific explorations uh, and expeditions went hand in hand with much of what we've mentioned today, the colonial project. So institutions such as Kew, um, the Natural History Museum, the Horniman Museum, the Powell Cotton Museum are doing really important works in looking at their natural history collections, their natural history specimens and decolonising them. So the, the built environment at Kew is really interesting, both in terms of its contemporary architecture and reflecting our modern sensibilities towards the natural environment and our urgent climate crisis. But it's interesting because it does sit alongside these older buildings, which have this really interesting
0: colonial link. Over the past few weeks, a number of esteemed members of of the architecture and engineering communities have sadly died. Their obituaries have all been covered in the AJ. On the 18th of December, Richard Rogers, a famed architect behind the Pompidou Centre in Paris, the Lloyds building in London and the Millennium Dome passed away aged 88. Often characterised as a leading figure in the high tech movement, Rogers rejected the label. Uh, for him, technology was an enabler with the new structural possibilities it offered a means to new forms of social interaction, from the scale of a building to that of a city. Um, and then just a few days before, Rogers' collaborator, Chris Wilkinson, co founder of double Sterling Prize winning practice Wilkinson Air, also passed away, age 76. Uh, Wilkinson, reputed for his elegant, lightweight structures, reflecting his roots in the high-tech movement alongside Rogers, won successive sterling prizes with his practices Magna Centre in Rotherham, South Yorkshire, and the Gateshead Millennium Bridge. Um, as well as for his architecture, Wilkinson won many awards for his art and design work. In 1996, he was named Designer of the Year by the Design Council. Uh, iconic buildings by Wilkinson Air include Stratford Station and the Royal Ballet School's Bridge of Aspiration. And then finally last week, it was announced that Max Fordham, the legendary engineer and sustainability trailblazer, also died aged 88. Fordham worked with many of the UK's leading architects during a career spanning more than six decades and founded his own practice with his wife, Talia Taddy Fordham. The business, which he originally ran from his bedroom while moonlighting, was founded on the idea of engineers bringing scientific knowledge into the art of building design. In 1994, he was awarded an OBE recognising his services to engineering. Major London projects engineered by Max Fordham include the Tate Modern Switch House, the Lambeth Palace Library and Archive and Croydon's Fairfield Halls. So Rosamond, perhaps you could tell us a bit more about each of these uh, of these men. What are their legacies in a city like London, and what impact have they had on architecture as an industry? Firstly, to
1: say what a difficult time of year around Christmas it is to lose someone, um, and the passing of such well-known figures like this really prompts a review and a looking back at their legacies, doesn't it? Especially, you know, over such long lives and careers. Um, so you mentioned first Richard Rogers. Such a well-known architect of his time, probably one of the best-known architects at the moment. Um, associated with the high-tech movement, though as you say, not a label that he he favoured. He had a fascinating life and career. So he was born in Florence in nineteen thirty-three, and then his family moved six years later to England. Um, and he famously struggled at school with his dyslexia. Um. He visited the Festival of Britain in 1951, and had, like many who visited, it really had his eyes opened to the possibilities of the new Elizabethan age. I think a really exciting time to to sort of mature as an architect. Um, So after national service, he won a place at the Architectural Association, then a Fulbright scholarship to study at Yale. And here he got to know another very well-known figure in the the architecture world, Norman Foster, um, and also his future wife, Sue Rogers. And he worked alongside both of them. Um, Early projects included the zip-up house and a house for his parents in Wimbledon. Um, But he really gained global attention with the 1971 competition he won, resulting in the, as you mentioned, the Pompidou Centre. But he also famously became a victim of Prince Charles's um, attitudes to modern architecture, the famous monstrous carbuncle uh, speech and the Prince's opinions. And the Prince lost Rogers his Chelsea Barracks Commission by intervening on that particular uh, commission. And as you say, later into the end of the 20th century, he produced the Lloyds building and the the Millennium Dome. So really, really, really famous, well-known buildings. Um, And then Chris Wilkinson, founder of the double sterling prize-winning practice, Wilkinson Air, and another nod to the high-tech movement. Uh, He studied architecture at the Polytechnic of Central London, which is now the University of Westminster. Um, and then after graduating in 1970, he worked with Dennis Lasden on the National Theatre. He worked with both Norman Foster and Richard Rogers, with Rogers on early versions of the Lloyds building. Um, Wilkinson Eyre was his firm and his partner was Jim Eyre, who survives him. And he worked with him since the 1980s. He worked on the redevelopment of Strat- Stratford Station in the 1990s, as well as Stratford Market Depot as part of the Jubilee Line extension. Uh, He also worked with the inventor James Dyson, producing headquarters in Malmesbury and a series of student accommodation pods for the Dyson Institute of Engineering and Technology. He wrote the book Super Sheds and was awarded, as you say, an OBE in the Millennium Honours List. Um, And then finally, Max Fordham founded the engineering business Fordham, Um, But what's so interesting, I think, about all of these men is who they worked with and the environment they operated within. It's very kind of lots of layers, lots of overlapping people and uh, practices. Um, So Fordham met Leslie Martin, famously designer of the Royal Festival Hall in 1954, and Martin really set him on his career path. Um, Fordham worked with Neve Brown, working with him on Alexandra Road Estate, Um, He lectured at Bath University, was a Reba Honorary Fellow and was awarded an OBE for services to engineering as well. So these three men and their careers, I think they really, um, you know, by by, um, having their obituaries and their deaths in such a short space of time, it really gives us uh, an opportunity to review and a fascinating snapshot of architecture from the mid to late 20th century to today. and then their the legacies and their impact on a city like London. Um, I think Roger's impact on London is, is um, you know, he produced so many iconic buildings, and it's really difficult to imagine London without them. Um, you know, the Lloyds of London building and the Millennium Dome, the, those buildings, those shapes in London are so familiar and they're so indicative of a certain time and a certain period, um, and they're instantly recognisable. Um, but also his work on shaping London, particularly um, post industrial London, with his role in 1997 as part of that urban task force, which resulted in that 1999 report towards, towards an urban renaissance. Um, so his work really shaped kind of post industrial London and inner London, and has really sort of resulted in the London that we have today. Um, And Wilkinson's legacy, working with technology, producing these lightweight buildings that, along with Rogers, really kind of characterise their era. Um, Fordham's obituary by Richard Waite in the Architects Journal describes him as a green guru. And I think in the current climate of um, the climate crisis and really thinking about sustainability and the impact of the built environment, his legacy is really important. But I think sort of su- drawing all three of those men together and sort of summarising their importance today, I think a key word for this really, I think, is collaboration. Um, and I think all of these have really shaped a city like
0: London. Great. Thank you so much, Rosamond. It's been fantastic having you on. Um, for our audience, who who where else can they find out more about what you've been up to and where can they find out more about your work? Oh,
1: um, probably... Um, Twitter is best so I'm on Twitter at Rosamond hashtag Lil L-I-L um, so yeah look me up on there that's probably best but thank you so much for having me I've had such a lovely time
0: thank you um, yeah and, and also everyone should know that Rosamond, as we said does a walking tour with Open City has a printed Pocket London tour with Open City and wrote a chapter in the alternative guide for our book from 2020 now
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. Do come on one of my tours. I like, it's nice to meet people on the tours. And uh, yeah, it's nice to have good conversations on the tours and have a chat and chat about the buildings. And yeah, yeah, come along.
0: You've been listening to The London, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to the Architects Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at, at @opencitylondon, or by using the hashtag #londondown. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk/support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City. Is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible, and equitable city.
1: Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable.